Acts chapter 2, we have been residing in this passage for some time as we kind of work through these marks of the church. I invite you to stand with me as we read this word together. May this be a word of life to us today. Beginning with verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This is Peter preaching. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor for all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. May God add his blessing to his word. Please, you can be seated. Well, as I've said, we are looking at the marks of the New Testament church when it was first born that day on Pentecost, and as it's recounted here in in Acts chapter 2. I would suggest to you that a river is purest at its source. And so if we want to be the church that pleases God, It's probably not a bad idea to take a look at the original. It's probably not a bad idea to look at the church from its inception. It was that church that changed the world where we saw so many saved. And so the marks of the early church we're kind of using as a measuring stick for our own church this morning, North Homestead Friends. We saw over the last few weeks how the church ought to be a place where we learned the Bible. It ought to be a place where we have close fellowship with one another. It ought to be a place where we regularly commune with God at the Lord's Supper. And last week, we saw that this ought to be a place of prayer and a spirit of reverence. Now, as you know, and and I hope that you sense my excitement, I am excited about where we are as a church. I love taking people through and giving them a tour of of what we have have already done. But as we begin to embrace the future and prepare for what is going to be some transition over the next few weeks, I think it's going to be exciting to move into the FLC for a while and and then finally be able to come back and experience a fresh, fresh place here in the sanctuary. I am excited about what's going to happen in our ministry in the upper room with the youth program. And then I think about what our children are going to be involved with and all the the outreach that occurs. I'm looking forward to what we're discussing even in uh, this this, uh, fall. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what who's going to step up and help us get the many jobs done this summer? The truth is we do need that small army. We need people to volunteer. This is an exciting and challenging time for our church. 
But I want to make sure that we are doing this the Lord's way. Now, one of the things that struck me as I was thinking about this passage is that the first church, I noted, one, it was an exciting church, and it was a sharing church. It seems to me that those two characteristics kind of go hand in hand. There in verse 43, we read, everyone was filled with awe at the the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. The, The first church was an exciting place to be. William Barclay simply put it this way. He said, it was a place where things happen. Now, let me just take you through and give you a sample of some of the miracles that were going on in the early church. In the first part of chapter 2, we read how the early church spoke in tongues on the day of Pentecost. You know, the, the, the story there is that the Holy Spirit suddenly came in on that prayer meeting. They burst forth, went out into the streets, and they were given the ability to speak in various languages. Acts 2 verse 3 says, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, sometimes we hear about speaking in tongues in church today, but I want you to note that originally when the church was speaking in tongues, it was not unintelligible gibberish. It was a language that they had never studied And they were enabled to speak so that they could share the gospel message in the heart language of those who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. This was a genuine miracle. If I began to speak Japanese suddenly, that would be a miracle because I've never studied Japanese. And I've never spoken to someone at length who did. Anything beyond sushi or teriyaki, and I'm lost. Now, now sometimes I think we really miss the significance of that moment. You remember in the book of Genesis, we have the story recorded of humanity trying, because of their ego, to build a tower toward heaven. You remember that story? They were trying to build the Tower of Babel. Mankind tried in arrogance to reach God, to control God. But in their pridefulness, they did not please God at all. And so you remember, he threw them into confusion. And you remember how he did it. They began to speak in different languages. Now that the New Testament, Holy Spirit has arrived, suddenly that's reversed. God has come to us. He has reached down to us. And so through the miracle of tongues, each person can hear the message of Christ clearly. Hebrews 2 verse 3 reminds us, how shall we ignore, escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. As people were listening in the streets of Jerusalem that day, they were impressed, and when they heard, this language, they heard these apostles and, and others speaking in these languages of their own heart, they were impressed enough that they became Christians themselves. Can you imagine the excitement of that day? On that first Pentecost day, 
Wow, it must have been incredible. In Acts chapter 3, we read about another exciting miracle. Peter and John, we're told, went to the temple to pray. And they met a beggar who was asking for money. This man had been crippled from the time he was born. Peter and John told him, hey, we don't have any money, but what we do have, we will give to you. And so Peter says to him, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Acts chapter 3 verse 7 says, Peter, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he began, then he went into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. It says, everybody who saw him, it goes on to say, was filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Again, you talk about exciting. Those were exciting days in the church. Now, one other miracle I want to point out, and this is in Acts chapter 12. This is, by the way, one of my favorites. Peter is in prison when he miraculously escapes. You may recall the story. The king had already beheaded James, one of the leaders of the church. And so here is Peter. He's in prison, and it looks like he's next for the chopping, or chopping block. So the church finds itself fervently praying for Peter. And in the middle of the night, an angel appeared in his cell and tells him to get up and leads him through the sleeping guards right out of the gate, and the gate swings wide open. Peter walks out, a free man, suddenly he finds himself alone, the angel is gone, and there he is on the street. Peter immediately goes to the place where the church is having their all-night prayer meeting. And in verse 13, it says that Peter knocked on the outer entrance. Now, if you know the story, you know that a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, I'm sure she asked, who is it? And she said, well, it's Peter. The scripture says she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Now, that's like something out of a sitcom, if you think about it. <laughs> Peter's outside. He, he's wondering if, if, if people are chasing him. I'm sure he's tired, he's cold, he, he's hungry. Think about the irony. He had no problem unlocking the gate at the prison, but now he's locked out of the prayer meeting. So you sense the tension and the humor as you read this. So now you're expecting these Christians to say to the servant girl, what? Well, of course Peter's at the door. We've been praying right here that he would be released. But that's not how they responded, is it? In fact, in verse 15, it says, you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be an angel. Now, isn't that interesting? Rhoda, it can't be Peter. He's in prison. We're praying that he be released from prison, remember? And I think that's the way we pray so often. We say, Lord, help so-and-so, and they get well. And we say, wow, I'm surprised. <laughs> Must be the medicine or a good doctor. We pray, Lord, help us to fund this building project. And he does. 
I've been trying to give the Lord as much credit as I can. I was talking with someone this week, the other day, and he said to me, well, it must be the Trump economy. Well, maybe, or maybe it has something to do with how often the Lord loves to to pour out his blessings. How often do we fail to give the Lord credit? Well, they, they finally opened the door and Peter came in and there was an exciting reunion because exciting things were happening in that church because God was doing miraculous things. And I believe that the church still should be an exciting place. It still should be a place where, where things are happening. Have you ever been to a dead church? Nobody smiles, nobody greets one another. The, the music is just kind of ho-hum. The preacher's going through the motions. There's no life. I, I've been to churches like that. At times, I, I must admit, I found myself thinking, maybe it's not so bad being there. The Bible says that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and maybe that's where it's going to happen, is right, right there. Now, I don't know any Christian today who has the ability to speak in a language that they didn't study, although I've heard reports in certain mission opportunities that's happened. I've never met a Christian who had the power of Peter to just walk by someone and touch them, and suddenly they get well. Although I would not put God uh, in a box and say he couldn't do that. If God is giving that special gift to people, I guess I haven't met that person. But I still think the church should still be a place where God is at work, where people who are lost are found, where people's lives are transformed and different where prayers are being answered, where the sick do get well, where needs are being supplied, where the spiritual gifts are, are evident and being employed. The, the church should be a place where things happen on occasion. Now, the truth is there's times when people don't want that. You know, there are some people who always want the routine and are threatened by change and energy, and the mundane is just safer. Fred Craddock tells of a preacher he knew who prayed with one of the members of his church in the hospital, and he prayed that she would get well. As soon as he said the amen, wouldn't you know it, she propped herself up, got out of the hospital bed, she put on her slippers, she put on a robe, and she began to walk around, and then she began to dance with this smile on her face, and she said, thank you, thank you, I feel so much better. The preacher went out to the car, sat for a minute, and then he prayed. He said, Lord, don't you ever do that to me again. Some people are shocked when suddenly God does something and moves. And they really don't want it to happen. Now, I've seen other churches go to the opposite extreme. Maybe you have too. They try to manufacture excitement. Every week there is just so much hype. 
They get the t-shirts and the balloons and the fog machines and the lasers and, you know, I mean, it just, just goes on and on. And I want to be careful here. I want to be really careful. But sometimes it feels like it's a mile long and an inch thick in terms of what they believe and what they teach. And I've been to certain places where when I walk out, it just feels like it was phony. It felt like maybe a, a, a pep rally. And I wonder, was it a concert or a worship service? There's a difference. And sometimes that phoniness is just so real, I just kind of feel like, I need a shower, you know? It, it just feels like that. Listen, excitement is not manipulated or manufactured. No, what we're talking about is a byproduct of when the Holy Spirit begins to move in a place and in a people. The authentic body of Christ should regularly experience a sense of enthusiasm and anticipation, and yes, even excitement about what God is doing. This ought to be a place where God is working, and boy, it gets genuinely exciting. Now, I think about our church. You know, this very month, we're helping in Slavic Village. Slavic Village Friends uh, begins this month. It, we looked at the, you saw the video of X3, the youth mission trip this very week. Those are just the things that are going on right now. Those are just the things going on right There is something happening almost all the time here. And, and when this project is done, it is going to multiply the opportunities we have for God to, to accomplish a great vision as we think about recovery ministry and new outreach ministries. So the church ought to be a place where things happen. And we each need to be a part of what's happening here. But then we should note then that the New Testament church was a sharing church. In other words, part of the excitement, part of what was happening is the way people began to love one another and care for one another to the extent that they were willing to sacrifice for that. They became generous. That's exciting. Now, notice there are three characteristics that, of their generosity pointed out here. First, they saw the need. They were perceptive. There were some very poor people who were a part of the Jerusalem church, and the wealthier Christians were not oblivious to that. They didn't turn a blind eye to that fact. They had been taught well that on Judgment Day, Jesus had said, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And those who are righteous are going to say, Lord, when did we see you in that condition? And he will say, when you did it to the least of my brothers, you did it to me. They took that seriously. The, the second thing the early church did is they sacrificed their possessions. The Bible says they had everything in common. They sold their possessions, giving to those who were in need. Now, I want you to know, this was not communism. This is not socialism. I saw a statistic just this morning. 42% of young people would rather live in a socialistic country. And I'm thinking, people, do you not know your history? 
That is foolishness. Absolute foolishness. History has proven that to be wrong over and over again. This was voluntary. Socialism is mandatory. Big difference. But it it was meeting the needs of the poor, which is different than, by the way, meeting their wants. That's different. This is not an equal distribution of wealth. But it wasn't capitalism either. Christians were not greedy materialists. They weren't saying, well, to each his own, get as much as you can. No, they were so excited about their faith that they wanted others to reap the benefits of knowing Christ. So they began to sell what they had so that everybody could have their needs met and come to know the Lord. And so they saw the need, they sacrificed their possessions, and thirdly, I want you to note that they entrusted it to, their, to the apostles. Acts 4 uh, kind of expands on this in verse 33. Listen to this passage. God's grace was so powerfully at work. One of the evidences of God's grace powerfully at work in them all is that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. The church congregation came together and they put their gifts at the apostles' feet. They allowed the leaders of the church to determine the best way to distribute those gifts. Now, maybe it just seems like or sounds like this would come from a leader of the church. But it really does seem that the New Testament practice and precedent is that funds should be brought to the church where the leaders are in a combined discerning nature able to distribute those. Listen, I I guess one of the ways to think about it is if you distribute your money to the needs on your terms all the time, it is so easy for your ego to get involved. It is so easy for you to, to get your recognition and there's a little less glory for God as a result. That's one of the reasons we we don't print who gives what here, and we don't try to make a big deal. We have some larger givers, we have some smaller givers, but I suspect that the person who's making $30,000 a year and gives may be giving a whole lot more, sacrificing a great deal more than the person who might be making $300,000 a year. And so as a church, we, we think about him, we pray about him, we spend a lot of time talking about how we support different ministries. We support missionaries through our denomination. We support the Fanes in Thailand, Ruth Ann Chad through the Josiah Project. Some of you know we support Love, Inc. and, and the Cleveland Pregnancy Center, very different organizations. I want you to know we have a Care to Share Fund. I want you to know if if you are in need of food or shelter or clothing or or some major crisis has developed in your uh, your home, we want to be there. Galatians 6.10 says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In other words, our first priority as a church is is to assist and minister to those who are in the church. And we do that. There are thousands of dollars every year that go through the Care to Share Fund. We don't advertise that a lot. We don't spend a lot of time talking about it. But because we do it at 
with discretion. But in addition, if you think about it, to financial support, we try to deal with the issues that may have caused the problem in the first place. But, of course, financial needs is one need that people have. There are emotional needs and spiritual needs, too. That's why we hire a staff here to work on those needs. Needs as children, needs of young people, ministering needs, caring needs. You hire me, you you bring me on to help lead and study and teach. Truth is, I don't know of a church where less is said about money than ours. From time to time, I speak on the issue when it comes up, and I might do a series on good stewardship, but I've always had this confidence, and I, I believe this. If the Lord's people love the Lord, they are going to see the need, and they are automatically going to give without much pressure. If you get excited about what's going on and you care about others, which is just natural when you love Jesus, then you're going to give. It's going to be a part of who you are. The Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. By the way, he loves an angry giver too, and we'll take it. <laughs> but, but we would rather you be cheerful about it. But, you know, either way, check clears, we're fine. But are you with me? When you love the Lord, when you love his people, when you see God working, you want to be a part of it. And you want to be a part of it. A coach told a, told a pole vaulter, throw your heart over the pole and the rest of you will follow. Once you throw your heart into God's people, into God's church, your bank account's soon to follow. It's just natural. And I am extremely grateful as I think about the the decades I've been at this church. Time and time again, I've seen people sacrifice greatly so that you and I could stand and be here this morning. Marguerite Higgins was a journalist who covered the Korean War. She was uh, permitted to visit a battlefield during the war where... 18,000 Marines of the 15th or the 5th Company were on one side of a mountain, and about 100,000 Chinese communists were on the other. Conditions were horrendous. Temps were well below zero. She interviewed a sergeant who had been there for 14 days, had endured the cold and hunger. He hadn't bathed. The battle was taking its toll. Margaret Marguerite Higgins asked the sergeant a question, and his one-liner led her to winning the Pulitzer Prize that year. She said to him, if I were God and I could give you anything you wanted, what would you ask for? The sergeant looked at her and he said, let me get this straight. If you were God and you would give me anything I would ask for, what would I ask for? Is that right? She said, that's right. He said this, he said, I would ask for tomorrow. I would ask for tomorrow. You know, all around us, people are struggling with all kinds of problems. All around us, people are in a battle 
They can endure it if there's hope for tomorrow. And I want you to know only the church has that hope for tomorrow. Only Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That message is not offered at the university. That message is not offered in a hospital. That message is not offered at the tavern across the street. That message is not offered at at, 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 uh, the progressive field. That message is not offered at the White House or the halls of Congress. They can't offer that. Only the church, through the power and ministry of Jesus Christ, can offer that. That makes the church the most exciting and beneficial investment in the entire world. Who can measure the number of people who are going to be saved right here in this facility if the Lord tarries? How how the impact of the future is going to to make an imprint for generations? Who can measure the homes that will be solidified, the lives that will grow and be changed right here? Because we decided to be the church through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. That's who we're called to be. And I'm grateful I get to do it with you. Let's pray together. Father, I saw those children out in that field this week. Water running mess upon mess and it was exciting it was exciting to know that those same children many of whom are not a part of a church heard the gospel message and were given an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as their savior I get excited when I see these young people before us this morning in these silly yellow shirts And they have said, Lord, use me. I'm willing to go, sleep on a floor in a church, work hard, get sweaty. And they do it because they love you. And they love each other. I get excited, Lord, when I look out and I see the facade that is being built in this place. And then when I begin to imagine, Lord, our future of what can be. Because, Lord, you call us to do great things because you're a great God. Lord, I I thank you for the things that are happening right here at North Homestead. And Lord, each of us have an opportunity to be a part of that. Some through giving. Giving of our finances, certainly. But maybe even more powerfully, by giving ourselves. Lord, we're called to be the church. What you did in Acts chapter 2, you want to make it a reality in this place. And so, Lord, my challenge is that each of us would examine ourselves and determine, are we in? Are we, are we going to, to be a part of your great vision for all the world?
May this be a place where people get saved. Lord, I pray for that person here. Maybe, maybe they aren't saved. Maybe they don't know you today. And yet, Lord, there is a, a pool. There is a spirit speaking to them and saying, today's your day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you can confess your sins and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior. And you can be officially a part of his church, his family. I want you to know we welcome you. And by the way, there's a, there's a party going on in heaven when you say yes. Lord, I, I thank you for for this church and this congregation. We bless your name. As a corporate body, we sing hallelujah and praise you and we give ourselves to you completely. 